The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I have a really fascinating and inspiring show for you today. My guest is Katie Beers. Her new book, um, well, it came out this year, actually, on the 20th anniversary of um, the incident that made her a household name. Um, it, it, the book is called Bur- Buried Memories, the Katie Beers Story. And um, this, uh, this is a never-before-told tale of Katie's kidnapping and survival. Uh, the kidnapping took place 20 years ago. Um, of course, I'm going to let her tell you the story. But um, what, what's interesting, particularly, is that um, that was in 19. Let's see, that was in um, yeah, 1992, two days before her 10th birthday. And what's interesting is that um, I think, well, those were the days before Amber Alerts. So the fact that she was rescued at all. Uh, is more of a miracle even than the rescues today. But what I think is so interesting is that um, today, almost almost every day, some don't make it to the headlines, but almost every day there is a story of a kidnapping somewhere or other. I mean, it has become an epidemic. And um, so Katie's was a classic case of this, and she's been able to look back on it and um, tell her tale with unflinching honesty and uh, emotion, and um, it serves as a as a story of, uh, of an inspiring story for all of us in terms of getting over uh, incredible catastrophes. Although fortunately, most of us don't have the catastrophe that she had, buried under a bunker for 17 days with a man who was abusing her um, psychologically, physically, sexually. And and then live to tell the tale. Um, well, without further ado, Katie, let me just go to you. Uh, you know, I think also. Well, first of all, let me ask you about that. Have you're, certainly over the years, I presume that you've been noticing that as well. That there seem to be more and more cases of kidnapping in the headlines. I definitely, unfortunately, I have realized that, and I. I have to think to myself, is it more or less because I'm paying more attention to the media? Because obviously before I was kidnapped, I was 10 years old and younger. I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the news. But now with all of the alerts that we have, the Amber Alerts with um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, with everybody getting word out so quickly about these people that are being abducted, it just makes it seem like there is, like you said, an epidemic. And it just, it's mind-boggling how many people are affected by this, whether it's a family member or whether they're the ones being abducted. It's just crazy to think how many people are affected by this on a daily basis. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we just had uh, one of the recent ones making headlines um, was the Hannah Anderson story, um, which I'm, I presume that you followed. Most certainly, yes. Where every time something like that comes in the headlines, I guess it, or, or that you read about, you know, something in particular, um, and one that's making headlines for a long time, for example, it must bring back trigger PTSD memories. A little bit it does, but I have worked, part of my recovery has been very much uh, coming to terms with what had happened to me, accepting what had happened to me. And then letting go of it. If I 
had a memory of my childhood every time mm. I watched a TV episode where a child was being unfortunately abused or mm. something like that. I would I would have to be erased and just stay in my house and not go anywhere, not do anything, um, because unfortunately it is all around us. Yes. So my recovery was very much being able to let go of everything and not dwell on my childhood. Yes, it is true. I mean, besides the headlines, the news headlines, I mean, there are television series and programs and, you know, um, abuse, the, the subject of abuse, all kinds of abuse is really around us all over, movies, television shows, in addition to the news. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's, one of the things that I also thought was really interesting um, about your story, which, um, of course, I'll ask you to tell us sort of chronologically, because as a psychiatrist, that's how I process things, and I think it makes it easier for everyone else, too, for listeners. Um, one of the things that, was, that I thought was very interesting, and of course, very uh, honest of you, um, you know, very courageous of you, was um, how the abuse and the neglect and all of that actually started before the, this kidnapping. And I want you to start with that. But, you know, um, in terms of today, the children who, be, who are abused or, or kidnapped um, today, uh, I mean, all, all throughout um, history or since this, is, since this has been happening, um, uh, kidnappers know how to target their victims. And so really, it's not really, um, I mean, your story is uh, like a tale from Dickens, your pre-kidnapping story. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, even though it doesn't usually come out in the news story, <laughs> um, once the person is rescued or once the child has died, um, it really, they come from families where there has, for the most part, where there has been some sort of abuse or neglect, which is why the kidnappers target these children in the first place. Not that they, you know, have, I mean, your kidnapper was a family friend, not that they have inside knowledge like that necessarily, but, um, but just being able to recognize that, that, that sense, picking up from a child, seeing a child in, in the yard, for example, and, and just knowing which children are going to be more uh, easily um, abducted. Mm -hmm. I, it's interesting that you bring that up right now, because I'm actually working with a victim from the area that I'm living in now, um, bring crush charges against her abuser from 17 years ago. And this has been one of the things that she and I have discussed in length is why was she targeted? Um, and hers was that she just had a quote unquote broken home. Her parents were briefly separated during the time that all of this had happened. But I, I think that pedophiles and people that want to cause other people harm they research and they know exactly what they're looking for, what that one key is to either separate the child from the parents or to gain the child's trust. They can tune into that by the child, um, mostly dealing with children, but by the child's reactions to that adult, they can see what is going to be the most effective way to lure this child away from their comfort zone. Yes, yes. And, of course, sometimes these kidnappers have more knowledge of what is actually going on in the child's life than others. You know, others, it seems, it seems like it's a random, you know, picking of a child, and yet in those cases where they don't really know the family background, they're able to just sense from the child, you know, that there's perhaps um, some, some vulnerability. Yeah. Um, that's interesting that you're working uh, with. I, I would imagine you'd be able to be very helpful to people like that. Well, let's let's start with your story. Um, and and one of the things that interested me is how was it? What happened to your own biological parents? Let's start from there. Why were you ever put in harm's way? Um, that is a story that I honestly cannot tell you exactly what happened because I have never been told. I've been told differing 
accounts of what had happened when I was an infant as to why I went to basically live with my godmother and her husband. Um, but I will start by saying my biological mother, um, if she knows who my biological father is, she has never told me. There have been rumors as to who he is. She's given me a couple names here and there. Um, but one of them was the name of a famous Miami Dolphin quarterback. And whether it was just an extreme coincidence or whether she just pulled a name out of the air that she had just heard recently, I don't know. So basically, my parent is Marilyn. And the story that was always told to me as to why I went to live with my godmother and her husband is because Marilyn had had a migraine and she was unable to watch me when I was a couple months old. Um, and so she asked my godmother to watch me for a couple hours. Well, that was the same story from both my godmother and my biological mother. Then the story differs. Marilyn went to try to pick me up and Linda, my godmother, wouldn't give me back to Marilyn. And Linda tells me or told me when I was little that Marilyn didn't come back for a couple months or something like that. Hmm. So honestly, how it occurred, I have no clue. But regardless, I was put in a pretty um, horrible situation from an early age. Hmm. Yeah, and this was out on Long Island, right? Yes. And so there was no formal, um, you know, no pay, no legal paperwork uh, ever between your mother and Linda, your godmother. And no, there was no formal arrangement at all. Um, it was it basically ended up happening that Marilyn was working sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four jobs, hmm. trying to basically make ends meet. So between my grandmother watching me and not being, and sometimes being able to watch me other times, not being able to watch me for differing reasons, um, Linda was, to the best of my knowledge, either on disability or just not working. So she was the perfect person mm -hmm. in hindsight to watch me because she was home all the time mm -hmm. and had no children of her own. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to uh, take a break right now. Um, my guest is Katie Beers. Her book is called Buried Memories, The Katie Beers Story. We'll be back after this um, with this riveting tale. Um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about this, the uh, new book called Barry. I don't know why I have trouble saying this. Buried Memories. <laughs> there we go. The Katie Beers story, and we have Katie Beers as the guest today. Um, we're talking about her life from kidnapped headlines to survival. Uh, and before the break, we were talking about how you had come to be with your godmother and her husband and how that turned out to be um, a disaster in itself. So continue with that. Um. I forget where I left off at this Well, point. you were saying about how, you know, how your mother left you there and it sort of turned oh, into yeah. a lot longer than, than just coming to pick you back up in a couple of hours. Um, and so what was life like with them? Um, I mean, they both stayed at home. Both Linda and her husband, Sal, stayed at home for the most part from what I can remember. Sal would have odd and end jobs here and there but was more than likely home most of the day. The earliest memories that I have of living with them are those of abuse, both physical, emotional, mental, verbal, and sexual. Um, Those are my earliest memories of these people who were supposed to be my one-on-one caretakers. Now, when you were, you were, you were brought to them when you were like, what, two or three? Um, I was actually told it was a couple months old. A couple of months, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so when you got to be older, though, when you got to be five or six, did you ever tell your mother what they were doing to you? Um, I told, well, first I told my godmother, um, I told Linda what Sal was doing to uh-huh. me, and she had some choice words for me and basically told me that she did not believe me. Hmm. And from there, I didn't tell anybody for a little while. And then I confided in my brother, I think, when I was about maybe seven or eight, somewhere around there. And my brother was is six years older than me, so he's a good bit older. So I confided in him as to what was going on, and he then told my biological mother. Uh-huh. And what happened? So. Um, from there, my biological mother came to pick me up from living with Sal and Linda and brought me to live in a very, very small apartment with her. And when I went to go live with her, she had contacted children's services about the, or contacted the police about the allegations of abuse and gotten a restraining order against Sal. So I, he was not allowed to be, I think, within 500 feet or something like that of me legally. But now, had your, had your brother gone to live with them too, or was he still with your mother the whole time? My brother went from living with my grandmother to living with my mother to grandmother back to my mother. He, since he was older and able to take care of himself a little bit easier, I think it was easier for her to care for him. Mm-hmm. So then you, you now ultimately, I know I'm skipping ahead a bit, but ultimately Sal got um, convicted of this. How did that come about? Um, when I was kidnapped, um, when John Esposito had abducted me, um, he had, he was actually the one that informed the media and the police that about the abuse allegations. But that's when really Sal was ultimately convicted because of my story making such media headlines. Mm-hmm. At least that's my opinion. Um, but I stood trial against him and spoke up and told the court and the judge and everybody else in Suffolk County that wanted to listen what Sal had been doing to me for the past at least eight years. Wow. And, um, I mean, I know you say that uh, that the kidnapping, in a way, was the best thing that happened to you because it got you out of that other life and, and then also got um, justice for Sal. You know, he got punished for what he had done. Um, of course, you know, as you're about to tell us, that, uh, I mean, it was quite quite um, a traumatic experience 
the abduction itself and what happened then was quite a traumatic experience. It's just, you know, one thing going from one um, horrendous experience to the other. Um, uh, do you think, I'm just thinking, do you think maybe since Sal, I mean, yeah, since Sal and Linda didn't really work, essentially, um, do you think part of the deal that your mother had was that she was working all these jobs and she'd be giving them some money if they took care of you? I don't, honestly, I don't think she had enough money to give anyone. Uh-huh. Um, even, even though she was working all of these jobs, like I remember at one point in time, she was a taxi driver. She's been a taxi driver since before I was born. Um, so she was a taxi driver. And then she was working for like a home nursing agency type of thing. And then she was babysitting somebody else's children. Hmm. And, yeah, talk about looking back in hindsight, looking at that. Like, okay, you're watching somebody else's children getting paid for it, but where was I? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I really, I don't think she had enough money to pay anybody. Like, I'm I'm sure she helped them, but I remember kind of everybody buying me things, whether it be, like, clothes or toys. It didn't all come from one source. Uh-huh. Hmm. Um, well, that's okay. And and you you were able to um, remember the. I mean, I know that you you said you were like two or three. I guess that's where I was getting there from. Um, when you first remembered being sexually abused by Sal. Yeah. I was. I was probably about two, from my best memory. And, of course, you didn't really even understand what that was at that time. Not at all. Not but, at all. But it just felt awful. Yes. I, I, real, I don't think I realized that something was wrong until I was maybe, until I told Linda when I was, like, six or seven. Mm-hmm. Because it had been happening literally my entire life. So mm-hmm. it was just something that was there. I knew I, knew I didn't like it, but... Nobody ever told me that it was wrong. There were no, there was no curriculum in school or anything like that mm. to me, your body is your own. Don't let anybody touch it or anything like that. So there was nowhere for me to learn about it because it wasn't being taught at home, and I wasn't in school enough. If it if it was taught in school, it must have been one of the many days that I had missed because yes, it was just something. So that was that another important. thing. Um, that the that um, Linda and Sal often didn't let you go to school, and they'd send you out for to do chores and and uh, take care of things for them. I mean, you were kind of like their slave. Exactly. That is very much what I was. It it was almost like a treat to go to school. Most mm-hmm. kids think it's a treat to stay at home sick when they're not really that sick, and for me, it was a wonderful day when I was able to actually go to school. Hmm. Well, do you think maybe, uh, I mean, I'm trying to figure out why they kept you all that time, especially if they obviously must not have had very much money if they weren't really working. Um, do you think then that Linda knew all along, consciously or unconsciously, and that she was, um, like, she was doing it for Sal, like you were her, you know, her offering, in a sense, to Sal? I, I've actually, I've thought about that. Also, because um, at one point in time, Sal and Linda did move into my grandmother's house because they had been evicted from their apartment or wherever they were living, and they needed a place to stay for what was supposed to be a little while. So they moved into our house. And I remember my grandmother had a bedroom downstairs. My bedroom was downstairs. And then upstairs was Marilyn's bedroom, which she rarely slept in because of her odd hour jobs. And then John's bedroom was upstairs, too. So when Sal and Linda moved in, rather than, like, making me and John share a room or me and Marilyn, I shared a room with Linda and John shared a room with Sal. Even though John was rarely ever home. Hmm. Um, he would be, I don't know where he would stay at that time, but he was rarely ever home to sleep in his own bed. So this married couple were sharing rooms with 
two children, mm, mm. separate rooms. So I don't know. It does seem odd that to me, looking back on it, while well, they're married, but they're in two separate bedrooms, two separate beds. Like just looking back on it, there were things that were odd about the entire situation. Yes. Okay. So then take us to December 28th, 1992, two days before your 10th birthday. How did, where were you living at the time and, and uh, with whom and, and how did this abduction, well, wait, actually, even before that, why don't you take us, how did you know uh, John Esposito, the man who became your kidnapper? He was a family friend. He um, told Marilyn that he was a part of the Big Brother Big Sister organization. Found out years and years later that he was never a part of the organization. He was actually denied from being a member of that organization. Um, but back then in the 80s when John Esposito entered our lives, we didn't have the Internet. And Marilyn didn't think to call the organization or anything. You just trusted people at face value. This is what they're saying. This must be true. And um, so he had been in my life from as early as I can remember. Hmm. I can't remember ever spending any one-on-one alone time with him. It was always with my brother, but it was always a treat when I got to go with him because he would buy us toys and candy and presents and whatever it might be. So it was always fun to be able to go and hang out with him, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... He, when he had abducted me, I was living, well, no, I was living with Marilyn at that time, and I had gone to go visit Linda for my birthday. She wanted to see me a day or so before my birthday to celebrate with me, and John had come over to the house to bring me a birthday present, even though Marilyn told me that I couldn't see him, and Marilyn told Linda that we couldn't see him. Hmm, because at that point, she was questioning him. We need to take another break. I can't believe it's coming around so quickly. Um, my guest is Katie Beers. Her story um, is um, out in her new memoir called Buried Memories. And uh, we'll, <laughs> you'll have to stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com welcome back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr carol lieberman and welcome back to dr carol's couch i'm your psychiatrist host dr carol lieberman here with katie beers 
We're talking about her story from kidnapped headlines to survival. And her book, Buried Memories, the Katie Beers story, is a New York Times bestseller. I didn't mention that before, and that's important. And obviously, and we're just, of course, only able in this, in this hour to um, touch on some of the highlights, but obviously there's a lot more. Um, we were talking before, oh, I wanted to clarify, when Katie was talking about um, the families being blended into her grandmother's, cramped into her grandmother's house, um, when she was talking about John living upstairs, that was her brother John. It's unfortunate. Um, her brother John, it's John Esposito is her abductor. And her brother's name is John as well, so don't, I didn't want that to get confused. Um, so we, we are now we're in December 1992, um, two days before your birthday, uh, and your mother let you go over to Linda's house, your godmother's house. But by then, she had enough concerns about John Esposito to tell Linda not to let you uh, be alone with him. And then what happened? Um. John had come over to bring me a birthday present, and he then had asked Linda if he could bring me to an indoor, um, kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese. It's called Spaceplex, um, but it was like an indoor arcade with a couple rides and games and stuff like that. And Linda said, yeah, that's fine. You could take her tomorrow. And I reminded Linda that Marilyn didn't want me to go. I didn't know why. Linda, or why Marilyn didn't want me to go, I just knew that she said that I wasn't allowed to go, so that's what I was sticking by, and Linda told me, she was like, no, you can go, you'll just be gone a couple hours, it'll be okay, and um, so I went to bed that night, woke up the next morning, and John came over, John Esposito came over to pick me up, and the whole day just kind of, it was just like one of those weird days. Um, but I was ten year, almost 10 and didn't really pick up on my intuition at all about it. And went with John, and rather than going to Spaceplex, he ended up taking me to Toys R Us and to a 7-Eleven. Hmm. Um, he told me that he wanted to buy me another game or another birthday present, and I told him no, he had already bought me enough and was just trying to go to Spaceplex and go back to Linda's house. I didn't want to be with him any longer than I was supposed to. And, um, oh, what was it? He, it was, it, I don't even know how to describe it. It was just that intuition that you get. Uh-huh. And so he buys me this game and we go to 7-Eleven and then he's like, oh, well, we should go to my house to play the game. mm and I was like, no, let's just go to Spaceplex and take me back to Aunt Linda's. And, of course, I'm 10 years old. can't complain. I can't argue. I, I'm stuck. Right. And so he takes me back to his house. We play this game. And I'm up in his bedroom. Hmm. And his bedroom is, or his apartment was just strange to begin with. It had a living room without a TV. And the game area where all the kids hung out was also his bedroom. It was the largest room in the house where he had video games, board games, um, like a play basketball indoor hoop, things like that. In his bedroom? It sounds like Michael Jackson's bedroom. Yeah, it it was very much similar, I'm sure. So I'm in there, I'm playing this game and I just felt very uneasy the entire time. I'm sitting on his bed which was unmade but that was the only place in the bedroom besides the floor to sit and it's where we had always sat to play video games and he was off doing his own thing and then he came up back up into the room and he was just a strange person that I had never met before. He was gone for probably like 10 to 15 minutes didn't recognize the John Esposito that I had known for years and years, just completely different person. He comes and he sits up behind me and he put his hand over my mouth and he says, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you or something very similar to that. And then he proceeds to put his hand up my skirt. Hmm. And I tried wiggling away and tried yelling, but nobody was there. His 
mother had passed away within the past year, and she was the one who lived in the other house on the property. There was nobody to hear me. And then he picked me up and took me kicking and screaming down into his office, which we were, that was an off-limits room. Nobody was ever allowed in his office because he worked for himself. And um, so he puts me in his office, and he's doing something in the closet. I'm not quite sure what he's doing, but there was just something terribly, terribly wrong. John had never abused me. He was never mean to me. He was always just the nicest person you could ever imagine. Hmm. So I pick up the phone, and I try to call 911. I don't know if I actually got through to anyone or if it was just in my imagination that I was telling somebody what was happening. But he came up in front of me, grabbed the phone out of my hand, threw it back in the cradle, and then he took me and threw me into his clo- into the closet that he had been doing something in. I then see that he's taking this big concrete slab out of the floor, hoisting it up into the air, And then he tells me to crawl down into it. I, of course, protested. Who wants to go into a hole in a closet? Mm. And um, so then he takes me and basically just drops me down this hole. And he tells me to start crawling while he climbs down. So I start crawling because I had no place else to go. And he somehow maneuvers himself in front of me because he had to unlock the door. And then we're in this six by six by seven or some sort of those dimensions box that was underground. And all I see in this box is a smaller coffin sized box that was about three feet by two feet by six feet long. Hmm. There was a toilet sitting in the middle of the room. There was a milk crate somewhere in the room. And then there was a shelf on the wall higher than where I could reach. And there was a TV up there. I don't remember the exact words of the conversation that we had had, but I think I asked him why I was down there or what he was doing, like what was going on. And he told me he was going to keep me down there for a while. Hmm. And um, it's funny because I remember the, I remember the events of what had happened so clearly but I have no concept of really the sequence of events because it's all just the 17 days that I was kidnapped are all just one big, long, stretched-out period of time because I didn't sleep very much when I was down there. Now, um, we should say that um, this was, as it turned out, this was a bunker so under his garage that um, everyone saw him building, Right. It took a year and a half, approximately, 18 months, to build this bunker? Yes. Now, I don't know if neighbors saw him building it because there was privacy fencing, Mm -hmm. but the privacy fencing wasn't that high. And um, his sister-in-law was at the property here and there. But what he did was he was so intelligent about this. He built this bunker behind his house, and then he put a carport over it. So if anybody asked, he was just excavating Mm -hmm. the land to put his carport, even though he had a huge two-car garage in his his house, attached to his house. He apparently needed this carport there, too. Mm. But I do remember kind of my brother and either one of my brother's friends or somebody playing in it, like jumping in and out of it and wrestling in it and this, that, and everything else. I remember watching that happening. Okay, so there you were. And there was something, I read something about um, how, when you were saying before about that you called 911, and also didn't you try calling your godmother, or or, or at least you imagined you did, um, to say that you were being kidnapped? No, one of the things that John had me, John Esposito had me do is... um because I had kind of put his kidnapping plans awry. He actually tried six months prior getting me to sneak out of my godmother's house and not tell her where I was going. So Mm -hmm. he could buy me a toy or he could buy me candy or ice cream or the typical 
come with me and I'll let you pet my puppy type of right. things that you always see in the movies. Right. Um, but it seriously, it was like that. He was telling me he'd buy me candy or he'd buy me toys if I snuck out and didn't tell Linda where I was going. Uh-huh. So I had put his plans all awry. So what his thought was is he was going to take me to this very busy, crowded um, indoor arcade, and then he was going to have me tape a recording saying that a man with a knife had kidnapped me, and oh my God, here he comes. Huh. Well, he had me record that on a little tape player, and then he took it to a payphone right next to Spaceplex and called Linda's answering machine and played it for her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he he had this so thought up. It was, it was insane, the thought that he put into this. He was thinking about it for at least a year and a half, maybe longer. Hmm. So, okay, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, so oh. there you were the first day down there. Okay. And um, so then he does this recording and at the, at first he asked me to record it and he didn't want to be in the room because he wanted it to be like genuinely fearful. And so I recorded it. And at the very end I said, I whispered, I'm at John's house. Huh? Hoping that he wouldn't listen to it. Well, he listened to it. Huh, that was very smart. Made me, <laughs> Especially <laughs> then he made me record it again. Old. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was a very, very street smart 10-year-old, unfortunately. With everything that I endured, I almost had to be. Yes. Um, but part of the reason why I was afraid to go to sleep is because another part of his plan was he wanted to take a picture of me laying down with my eyes closed and he was going to send it to the cop and um, put a note on it like she's dead or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And, so, you, figured, and when I, you figured that out as well. Yeah. And when I protested to that, he his response was, okay, well, we'll just do it later. Uh-huh. And so that's why I didn't sleep. Uh-huh. Boy. Well, we, we need to take another break. Uh, we'll take a quick break. My guest is Katie Beers. Her book is Buried Memories, the Katie Beers Story. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, so stay tuned. <laughs> talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with Katie Beers, talking about from kidnapped headlines to survival, and survive she did, um, and is sharing her story, primarily hoping to help people heal um, from similar cases of abduction, abuse, and so on. Um, we were talking about, uh, of course, this is going to just have to be highlights, fewer highlights than I thought, because, <laughs> because there's so much to the story, so everyone's going to have to buy the book. Um, but at, at, you were horrendously sexually and emotionally tortured during 
during your 17 days captivity. Um, one of the interesting things is how he made tapes of, of what exactly? Um, John had a voice-activated recorder on one of the shelves that he recorded. I don't know if it was the entire time that I was in captivity or only bits and pieces here and there, um, but they were voice-activated recordings from at least day one until a couple days in. And they... They have me, the conversation that I had with him on the first day. Now, I have not, I will preface with I have never listened to the tapes. I do not ever want to listen to the tapes. I would prefer it if they were destroyed. But from my knowledge of the existence of these tapes, they have me to the point on my birthday, on December 30th, that I'm sitting there crying, oh, no, I almost missed my birthday because I must have seen on the news the day of the week or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but then it has conversations. And I have re- I've read the chapter in the book, and my co-author, Carolyn Gossoff, did an amazing job with keeping it short and simple but putting just enough in there. From the tapes. Um, yeah, from the tapes. But... Um, it has um, part of a conversation that I had between John and I saying, well, when I release you, make sure you tell them that I didn't touch you, and just different things like that. And um, so what made him decide to release you? To te- well, what made him go to the police eventually, 17 days later, and, and admit tell them where you were? From the time that he told the police that I was missing, the police kind of knew that something was a little off about him. And so they were actually pressing on him because he couldn't give a description uh, or anything of the person that he had seen, I think, like watching me at Faceplex. Um, So they knew that something was a little off. And then the more they interacted with him, the more they realized that things were off. I think part of the things that made John release me, John Esposito release me, were that I was asking him questions um, on a daily basis. And I would have like almost different personas. Like One day I would be nice. And then the next day I would be a complete brat. And then the next day I would be all loving. And I would ask him these questions like, what am I going to do for school? What am I going to do? I want to have kids. I want to get married. I want to have mm. family. And he would always have these responses. Well, you'll get married to me. You'll have a family with me. Huh. And I would tell him, no, I don't want to do that. I absolutely don't want to do that. Um, so it was a combination of that. And then also the police were at his house 24-7. He could not, to my knowledge, he could not leave his property without the police searching his car, following him to wherever he was going. And then they also, um, whenever he would put out garbage, they would also search his garbage. Huh. They they would come to his home. They would come from the front main house to his apartment a couple times a day. Like, if he was home, they would come, like, every so, um, like, on almost, like, a schedule, like, every 15, 20 minutes, a half hour, however long it was, oh. um, like clockwork. So they basically were not giving it a rest either. I definitely think that if the police weren't sitting on him as much as they were, that my outcome would have been completely different. Yes. So he told them that that some man, like you know, like he had you make the recording. Um, yeah. He told told the police that some man snatched you from space. Yeah. Flex. Yep. That is basically exactly what he told them. And then he played the. And then before that, he played this tape on my godmother's answering machine. Mm-hmm. And then they also figured out the police figured out or the FBI figured it out that it was a tape of a tape. So they mm. knew mm. that it wasn't me calling. So so then what happened on the final day? How did they finally swoop in? On the final day, John had, John Esposito had finally told, um, or no, he called his lawyer and told his lawyer, I know where Katie is. And his lawyer called the DA the DA struck basically a plea deal with him 
before he even led the police to where I was. Mm. Otherwise, he wouldn't lead the police to where I was because you would have never found me. Um, So the plea deal was already written in stone before I was even released. So then he brings these two guys down with him. And I hear John talking to somebody when he comes down. And I knew something was off because John only ever came down at night. And this was in the middle of the day, maybe, I don't even know what time, like around the lunchtime news. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's he found two friends that are going to come and have mm. a good time with mm. you or something like that. And they tell me, they're like, oh, we're police, you're safe. And I was hesitant to believe them yeah. because of all of the questions that I had asked John over the past 17 days. And finally, they were like, gather your stuff. We're going to get you out of here. So when they said that, I gathered as much stuff, not well, my clothes. And you'll have to read the book for this story. But I had $500 down there with me. Um, I gathered that and, like, got out of there as quickly as I could. And then I sat in the living room with the two detectives or two, two men and John Esposito. For it could have been a minute, it could have been five minutes, it could have been a half hour. I don't know how long it was, but I actually sat in the room with my abductor after being released. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. It, I mean, obviously, if they hadn't sat on him as much as they did, um, and this continued, I mean, I guess his fantasy was that he was gonna, you were gonna grow up and you marry him and have children. Yeah. That is what he wanted. Well, and then, of course, there is more to the story in terms of um, how you finally got to be in a better home after that and how you've been through years of therapy. And I know one of the things that you talk about that I so agree with, and people don't, a lot of people don't get this, about how um, a large part of your recovery is due to your being able to keep um, some memories buried for a while until you were, I mean, you were only 10 at this point when you were found, until you were able to process them in your own, um, at your own pace. And how that was really important in, in terms of your recovery. Most certainly. Now, I did have to, I was preparing for a trial against Sal when I first entered therapy, but a lot of my therapy was basically talking about whatever I was comfortable talking about, whether it be school or friends or what was going on in my foster home. And my therapist never pressured me or pressed me into talking about the abduction or anything like that if I wasn't comfortable. So it gave me time to process and almost accept what had happened. Uh-huh. And then I was able, once I accepted it and came to terms with it, then I was really able to open up and discuss it without any reservation. Yes. And, you know, Katie, we've come to the end of our show. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to say that, well, first of all, I mean, it, it is an amazing story. Yes, we touched on some of the highlights, but, yes, I really recommend and Clearly, people can see how important this is to read, especially today where there is this epidemic of people um, being kidnapped and abducted and abused, even in their own homes. So um, the book, again, is called Buried Memories, the Katie Beers Story. It's a New York Times bestseller. Katie, thank you so much for sharing this. I know it's not easy, even though you've been through all this therapy and it's been years in the past and you've made an incredible life for yourself. Um, Still, I appreciate your sharing this, and you are an inspiration to others. So thank you, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 